0: Welcome to the Dairy Dialogue podcast and this is number 92 and I could find nothing of interest about 92 or July the 22nd which is when this is going live. I'm Jim Cornall, Editor of Dairy Reporter, and this week on the podcast, our guests are Norman Stanjevich, CEO of Food Union Europe, Paul Kennedy, Global Nature and Sustainability Manager, Specialized Nutrition at Danone, and Federico Mufato, CEO at Digibio, and Bridge Sahi, Co-Founder and CEO at Swiss Decode. As for the week that has just passed, well, I went to a restaurant for the first time in around six months. It was all surprisingly calm and the masked waitresses didn't even seem strange. Speaking of masks, whoever cooked the meals did a fantastic job of masking any taste and flavor in the food as well. So not the greatest food, but nice people. And in a typically British fashion, we said it was fine. But it was just nice to eat out again although it wasn't a special occasion. We were on a long walk and the restaurant en route just happened to be open so we thought why not. One of the plans I had for later in the year was hopefully to visit Cial in Paris. Well not anymore. That's been postponed until 2022. I'm wondering now if any events will actually go ahead in 2020 other than virtual ones and I do hope so. I'd even go to a textile show at the moment. Although, having thought about that, maybe not. The samples wouldn't be edible and I'd never get the expenses approved. So before we get on to our guests this week, we will run through some of the articles we've had in the past seven days that you may or may not have missed, or may have deliberately avoided. Megal Group is closing a facility in Croatia, Fonterra revised its forecast Farmgate milk price ranges, Fairlife has branched out into ice cream, and in the UK, Ornoa Foods issued its financial report. In India, the government and the country's ice cream association moved quickly to quell the myth that you can catch coronavirus from ice cream. There were some very strange myths that the WHO debunked regarding both causes and cures or preventions, but then here in the UK, and I think in some other countries too, there's been some attacks on 5G phone towers because some people think it transmits coronavirus. So following that logic, I assume 4G gives you the flu and 3G just gives you a common cold. And intermittent internet is responsible for high blood pressure. Moving along. A new patent for NZMP Infant Nutrition Ingredients allows companies to make cognitive development claims. Eagle Product Inspection introduced Trace Server Software. And in the UK, Singletons and company has launched Kefir Cheddar. Speaking of cheddar, there was one story that I really enjoyed this week, and that was about British and German cheesemakers combining to create a hybrid cheese, which they have called Alpen Cheddar. So I'm thinking we have some pretty inventive listeners and readers out there. I wonder if you can come up with some other interesting hybrid cheese names, like a mix of double Gloucester and Gouda, which could be called double Gluda, or maybe a combination of Halloumi and Camembert, which could be called Hello Bear. I'm sure you can do better. In fact, I know you can. In the US, Chibani launched a new range of nutritional foods and drinks, and Perkin Elmer is promoting a new spectrometry solution for milk, whey and cream. And we will have an interview about that in two weeks' time when we have a podcast dedicated to companies that attended the virtual IFT event last week. Obviously ones that had something new in the dairy space. So you can read those articles and a whole lot more at dairyreporter.com. So let's get to the first guest on the show this week. Danone announced recently that its facility in Wexford, Ireland is the first baby formula production site in the world to be certified carbon neutral by the Carbon Trust. And with the details on how they achieved this and what it means for the company is Paul Kennedy, Global Nature and Sustainability Manager, Specialised Nutrition at Danone. So I wonder if you could just, obviously, don't need to give any background on who the company is, but uh, if you can give me some background on the importance to the company of this kind of certification and pursuing this certification specifically.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you may well know that uh, at Danone, our One Planet, One Health vision really sets about bringing health, true food to as many people, but at the same time protecting the planet And of course, our climate action plan is is a fundamental part of that vision. So, for example, we've committed to achieve zero net carbon emissions across our full value chain by 2050 and uh, and to reduce our intensity by 50% by 2030. So the importance of this particular achievement is a prime example of the actions that we need to take in order to deliver on those ambitious goals, you know.
0: And when it comes to certification, I mean, there's so many different kinds around the world. How do you decide what? standards to aim for when you're setting targets?
1: I think absolutely it's very important as we said we have those commitments and it's important that we work uh, to highly recognized internationally credible standards. So for example on our zero net journey uh, towards 2050 our plan and our commitments we work with the science-based target initiative to validate them to make sure that Danone's climate journey is fully in line with with the Paris agreement for example. And then when we look at a local level for a manufacturing plant, for example, to embrace carbon neutrality. We work with internationally credible bodies like the Carbon Trust that can take us through a recognised standard. And in this case, it's, it's, it's recognised as the 20, past 2060 standard, which is the only internationally standard available for carbon neutrality that you can adapt to a manufacturing plant, for example.
0: So I guess, I guess transparency is extremely important in this as well and
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: What measures have you already taken at the plant and the company to achieve this specific certification goal?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's been a bit of a journey. Um, a journey, as I mentioned to you, is a bit, a bit close to my heart because uh, I started my Danone journey in Wexford in 2010. And to be honest, we, we set about the goal at the time and inspired by Danone's commitments to, to try to transform that factory into a, a carbon neutral landmark. And if I'm open and honest, we we didn't have all the answers back then. We didn't know, but we had that commitment. And and some of the key measures along the way have been, for example, installing a, a biomass boiler in the plant in Wexford to provide a renewable source of heat for the plant. Switching to 100% renewable electricity later in the journey was another key step along the way. And then behind it all, um, the, the way we manage energy in the plant, uh, you can imagine from a nutritional plant, it uses quite a amount of energy. So the way we smartly um, use energy in the plant is a fundamental part to it and and again we work with standards behind that like uh, iso fifty thousand and one. so there are some fundamental measures I, I think for me back in in 2013 when we invested in the biomass boiler that was the the real catalyst because it was one of the most challenging but uh, it was really the catalyst to accelerating the journey
0: so this has been going on for the best part of a decade then
1: yes it has and, and i think that's the important point we had to break it down into steps in, in order to achieve it and, and make sure what we delivered there was transformational. And it took various initiatives to, to get there in the end to make sure that we have a fully credible carbon neutral plant in the end.
0: So is it something where like 10 years ago, you come up with a plan and you just stick to every step of that? Or is it something that you kind of go in thinking, well, we know where we've got to get to and we're going to just have to sort of improvise as we go?
1: Yeah, I think... It was. It was the commitment at the start was fundamental, and um, we knew what we wanted to deliver, but like I said, we didn't have all the answers. So it it means going out of your comfort zone and, and and trying to find partners to help you make it. You know, it's it's definitely something we weren't going to achieve on our own. And some of the examples showed that we've had to partner. You know, with with the local community, for example, to find a sustainable source of biomass locally around the plant. That's, that's something we had to go out beyond the, the boundaries of the factory walls to, to make it happen, you know, in kind of a, a more collaborative approach.
0: And were there any steps along the way where you thought, oh, we're not going to make this? Or was it all pretty much, well, we've got to do this, so we'll just go around any blocks that we get to?
1: I think the biomass part was definitely the, the most challenging. As we said, the, the factory at the time was, was running on heavy fuel oil, no access to a gas network. So, you know, biomethane at the time wasn't, wasn't an option. And there wasn't a robust industry around supplying biomass in, in that region of, of Ireland yet. There was a whole untapped source of forestry within the region where it could be made uh, available. You know, so for sure there were days where we wondered, is this going to happen? Because that supply chain was f- fundamental in one of our key levers of moving to a more renewable fuel. You know, we could build the biomass plant, no problem, but if we hadn't established a secure supply chain it wouldn't be the success it is today
0: when you get some kind of certification you don't just pin it up in the office and say okay we're done what are the next steps to keeping on going and keeping improving
1: yeah i think the next steps for sure Uh, wexford is leading the way for many of our plants in danone to follow and they're really a prime example how we need to rapidly decarbonize our our energy but even within the certification itself and even for the factory itself it must continue to commit to reducing you know and and we do use uh, natural gas as a backup for that plant we would love if we have if we can find a solution for biomethane as a as a backup s- uh, scenario instead of using uh, natural gas that's one side of it and of course, we also take responsibility for employee commute and, and business travel associated with the plant. So there are other areas of focus where we'll um, create more awareness and bring options and, and focus there because it, we can also have an impact beyond just the energy of the factory.
0: All right. You mentioned that there's something that you can transfer to other the known facilities. I assume that each one has its own challenges and differences because as you mentioned the issues that you had there in Ireland I would imagine maybe those don't exist in other places.
1: Yeah so each of our plants has their own roadmap that they're embarking on. We have some examples uh, that you might have heard about like like last year it's, it's quite a similar case to Wexford but our in the South Island of New Zealand our, our nutritional plant there is on its own carbon-neutral journey. Similar technology with the biomass being one big step. So they're they're following in, in the footsteps. Um, but biomass is not a solution for all of our plants. Uh, you really have to look at it in a local context to, to see what's possible. We believe it can be a solution to decarbonising our energy. But also, we are very much behind trying to establish a biomethane industry as well. And for example, our other Danone factory in Ireland, in McCroom, is, is very much leading an industry initiative there to try establish a biogas solution for the energy source of that plant in particular. So they're just two examples about about for sure. We're we're learning a lot from this case in Wexford, and, and we're accelerating it in the rest of our network.
0: And obviously, when you start on journeys like this, you don't want to appear like you're being dictatorial and imposing this kind of thing on the staff especially if they're not exactly sure what it all means how do you communicate what you're doing with them and get their buy-in so that they're on on board as well
1: yeah i think this is quite an easy one because uh, as a dan owner they're very much uh, empowered by our vision first of all where food and and the health of the planet are, are fundamentally connected So in the local context in Wexford, uh, the example there is that that factory is, and it's the case for many of us, it's very much part of the local ecosystem, the local community. So there's a huge sense of pride about how that plant contributes to the local community, whether it's social, economic uh, or on the environment perspective. So it's it's very easy to to have that buy-in when you have that sense of pride within the local context. And also, you get them involved in the project. So it's not just a, like we fly in a project team to establish this. They're very much part of the journey.
0: Um, and how does this fit in with the Danone goals overall?
1: Yeah, so uh, as I mentioned, it's uh, our climate action plan is is a fundamental part uh, of what we do in Danone. And this is a prime example of that stepping stone uh, along the way towards our ultimate goal of, of being a zero net carbon emission company by 2050. So it's a prime example of that uh, and how we need to act, not just in our manufacturing plant, but right across our value chain uh, on delivering that goal.
0: And I assume how often do you kind of assess and reassess the goals and progress?
1: Yeah, so we measure every year. Now, first of all, even at a factory level, we're looking at the performance on a monthly basis even. So we we very much uh, look at how our projects are contributing, and and it's very much a performance-driven topic. But then, you know, we do a full value chain analysis every year, disclose our results on that, and we also disclose through platforms like CDP to ensure that we are on the journey to what we committed and then making sure that our actions are basically making sure we're we're part of that Paris Agreement initiative of maximum two-degree global warming and, and Danone's role in that.
0: And of course, Danone has been on this journey for quite some time now before it became something that was extremely important because of what consumers were demanding and what governments were demanding.
1: We all know and, and you know, consumers, governments, the, the topic of the climate crisis really, really peaked in the last uh, 12, 18 months. But this is something that we've been very much on top of in Danone for, for quite a number of years.
0: I suppose that helps in the long term that you, you're you not sort of playing catch up. You're already ahead of the game.
1: Yes, it it helps, and it it helps that we're working with a lot of experts and our peers and and partners as well within the industry. Because, as we said, we won't achieve this alone. Quite a big part of our impact is is outside, for example, the walls of our factory. So we very much partner on this in a in a very strong way, because we we know it's it's true collaboration that is the only way we're going to reach the goal in the end.
0: Next, it's to a collaboration between Dutch digital biology firm Digibio and DNA detection company swiss based in Switzerland, who are joining forces to accelerate the automated detection of milk fraud. To tell us about the project and what the problems of milk fraud are and how the companies are solving them, are the CEOs of both companies, Federico Mufato from Digibio and Bridge Sahi, co-founder and CEO at swiss code who you will hear from first, well, after me asking the first question. If you could tell me a little bit about your respective companies and how you came to collaborate on this project.
2: Hi, Jim. Thank you for uh, having us on this podcast. Uh, my name is Bridget Sahi, and I'm from swiss code And swiss code is in the business of providing rapid on-site testing for the food industry to secure the supply chain from farm to fork. We replace a a test which is performed in the laboratories called the PCR with a test that can be performed on site. And we're
3: excited to be on this call today and to talk about our future solutions. Uh, Hi, everybody. Um, My name is uh, Federico. Thank you, Jim, for having me on the podcast. Um, I'm the CEO and founder of Digibio. Digibio is a platform company. Uh, What we develop is uh, a platform to automate the biological testing in the laboratory. It's usually takes uh, uh, many hours, you have to use very different protocols and, and operators to perform very complex procedures. So what we try to replace this is with one sleek box that can automate the testing that before was performed by the analyst, by the operator, by uh, one machine. They automate all process from uh, the sample, from uh, uh, let's say processing it, and eventually uh, deriving an insight that can be used for evaluating the, how good the test was. So explain a little bit how all of this came to be. I think that it all started actually um, because back then, while we were in an early stage uh, and uh, at the very beginning of uh, Digibio, we were looking for very different, let's say, use cases. Uh, what kind of technologies, what kind of processes, what kind of uh, analysis can we automate? We launched uh, a beta program. It was our first, uh, let's say, approach to the market, just to try to understand, like, we can automate biological testing. Uh, let's try to find partners, potential customers. So this was uh, more than three years ago. And I engaged with uh, Gianpaolo because of this, uh, uh, let's say, initial uh, market test. And uh, shortly after, we started to discuss about uh, uh, what were the potential of uh, automating, specifically the Swiss code testing workflow, in our uh, let's say uh, technology and so uh, after that we realized that there was a, an interesting overlap uh, on one hand uh, uh, digibio had a technology that can automate the biological testing and on the other hand um, Swiss the code that had a chemistry had a molecular test to get an insight about the food product or the specific uh, product you have in front of you but it was a chemistry without a precise uh, automation platform yet. And so uh, I see that we saw that there was a very interesting overlap over there, and we started to discuss about what were the potential, uh, let's say, highways. that is, these two ideas could have been merged and then we could have collaborated. And as part of this uh, initial beta program, where we were st- trying out and testing with different customers, we started to realize that uh, indeed there was a, uh, some challenges regarding how am I going to give a customer a, a complex machine So we need to hide away all the complexity. And that's what exactly our technology does. Inside of a small chip, very similar to, let's say, computer chips, what we can do is we can add uh, all the reagents, all the samples that are today used in in a bigger lab, and we can miniaturize this whole thing to a teeny tiny environment. And uh, there uh, we saw that there was the opportunity to fully automate the whole procedure therefore giving the capability of uh, let's say a full molecular lab to someone that maybe does not have a lab uh, maybe is uh, in uh, in the field uh, maybe does not have the molecular biology, biology training or the phd then in most cases you need to have in order to perform these tests so really democratizing uh, some of the insights that you may have if you would have the, the benefit so we started discussing, and uh, uh, shortly after that, we realized that there could have been a good opportunity to collaborate on the project, and we were very glad to receive the, uh, the latest funding from uh, Eureka Eurostars to really kind of top this and start working more and more towards like the concept of uh, bringing a product to market together.
0: Before we talk about the solution that you're working on together, I wonder if you could give me some background on what the problem is and where in the world those problems are? There are
2: multiple problems, so let's just go through them one by one. First of all, there's an issue around milk adulteration, That's companies, large companies that are producing chocolate, baby milk powder, or whatever, The price of milk is going to be based on fat content and protein content. So what happens more in certain parts of the world than in other parts of the world is that some individuals may just add vegetable oil, coconut oil, palm oil, something like that to increase the fat content. And then they may may add fillers such as soy to uh, boost the protein content. So of course, they will receive extra money and the company that's buying it is going to lose money. The issue is not always about the fat and the protein content. It's what happens when you put that adulterated milk into a process. And so the specifications of the end result will be affected by the adulterated milk. And then it may not pass the test. So this can lead to waste and uh, other issues. So if one understands what happens in this process, basically samples are taken at the beginning. So let's say at a milk collection point. Or it could be at the factory, and it could be during the process of producing whatever is being produced, your know what it might be, and it could be also at the product release. Samples are taken at every step along the way and sent to the laboratory, where Federico will describe to you what happens in a laboratory where you need a trained scientist, maybe PhDs, you need high capital intensive equipment to perform the test. But then when the results are sent back to where the samples came from, it can be seven days later, which is just too long. The company has a choice. Do I increase my cost by perhaps storing the milk, or do I increase my risk by just using the milk that I have and then seeing what happens in the future? Another user case, which is now becoming more common, and this is actually becoming more common in the West, is that the vegetable milk plant-based milk is actually becoming more popular. And so there are many companies now in the West that have a single production line and they will produce plant-based products and they produce dairy-based products. And only recently there was an incident where a product that was declared to be vegetable-based milk actually had dairy cow-based milk inside it. These changes in the production process can be daily. It can be based on a shift. And when this happens, so when you're making a vegetable-based yogurt, for example, dairy-based, and you have the vegans that do not want anything dairy, you have to make sure that whatever, whichever way the switch is happening, that the products which are coming off the line are 100% what they are claimed to be. Again, the testing that takes place today, what's happening is that they will clean the machinery. So, for example, if they want to ensure that there's no vegetable-based product left in the machine, they will most likely do an antibody test. Not as accurate as a DNA-based test that we are producing with Digibio. Then also what they will do is they will produce the first batch through the machinery and test the first batch again with the antibody tests. But now what companies want to do is they want to, A, not just wash the machine and then do a DNA test. They also want to do a DNA test on the first batch run as well, to ensure that the machines are being cleaned properly. What they're asking for is instead of sending samples to the lab where the results are taking so long, they want to have a machine on site which requires minimum hands on time by their operators. And the operators are the factory workers or the farmers, they are not the PhD trained scientists working in the lab. We are now working with Digibio to create this on site rapid solution that will perform this test in a very short period of time so that the individuals doing the test can take, make decisions on site about what to do. Do they need to reject the milk because it has vegetable content in the milk? Or do they need to clean the machine again because the machine hasn't been cleaned properly? And so these are the sort of user cases that we are developing uh, with Digibio. And now I can let Federico explain how the technical side of the solution is
3: coming together. Thank you very much, Bridge. Uh, Great explanation. In our case, like when the sample gets into the side of the lab, usually what happens is that a human being has to basically take the milk, they have to process it, so they have to extract the DNA. And then when the DNA is extracted, that belongs basically to uh, usually the cow or uh, whatever is in uh, the milk sample. It can be extracted. So when this sample is ready, it's uh, prepared with the right reagents and placed inside of a machine. Now, this sounds very easy, but uh, it is not because it's a very complex procedure that requires uh, uh, manual labor. And in this case specifically, you have uh, scientists, usually PhD scientists, that have to use uh, hand pipettes. So these are instruments to precisely manipulate liquids And they go about their day by manipulating liquids, placing them in containers, and eventually putting them in machines. This is complex, and coming from that background, I can uh, tell you that uh, the error rate, the human error rate, is tremendous. Uh, Because human beings are not made to do the same repetitive task over and over and over. Uh, We're made to do more interesting things most of the times. There is an uncertainty with this test. Did the operator actually do this right? Is the connection between the sample and the precise batch and the insight that I wanted to have correct. Maybe uh, there was a mistake in mislabeling the samples. And that happens more than what we think, actually. So enter Digibio. At this point, uh, we bring our technology. So what we do is uh, we basically take a full lab, we shrink it down, and we automate it. How do we do this is uh, we use the similar technology to semiconductor technology to miniaturize some of the components of this lab. And strictly speaking, what we do is whenever you had a scientist that had to manually operate a pump-based machine to manipulate the liquids, uh, we remove these from the equation, uh, and now we have uh, the liquids are manipulated automatically at the micro scale inside of one of our microfluidic chips. Uh, this enables us to reduce the volume, which actually brings a uh, uh, cost-saving, but specifically automate at the very Microscale these reactions and what is happening eventually this uh reaction very much like in a laboratory after a preparation step coming from the milk that is prepared and all the reagents are added is sent to a station inside of this microfluidic environment where a specific uh, signal is detected which tells me basically do i have or not uh and this is based of course on the technology of the Put has developed do i have or not this specific uh, contaminant in my sample. Now, our machine is able to detect, collect this information and store it and send it eventually to what will be user interface that the, the user uses and gives all the insights to take the next the decision. Uh, shall I remove uh, this batch of milk, for example, from production line? Maybe it is, it's not right, has some uh, parameters that are not in line with my requirements and so on. Moreover, what we can do, because we can miniaturize, we can, uh, let's say, pack in a tighter space much more tests, much more samples. And therefore, uh, we can really speed up this process of testing multiple batches and uh, speed up the process of getting the insight that you need. As Bridge was saying, it takes a very long time. Why does it take so much? It's because logistics is a very complex process. Uh, You need to prepare the sample, you need to send it to the laboratory, they need to intake the sample. Of course, there is a a chain of control, let's say, by which you're following continuously where the sample comes from and where this is going. Now, all of this is automated inside of our machine. And this gives uh, a much faster processing time and eventually a much faster sample to insight for the customer.
0: So how easy to use and cost-effective will this solution be for those that use this particular product? So basically, if you can
2: imagine uh, what's happening out there in the production sites, in the factories, at this moment in time, samples are taken, placed in a tube and sent to the laboratory. Nothing really comes back until seven days later. have to make their decisions about increasing the cost or increasing the risk in terms of waiting for the results or not. in this case, there will be about 45 seconds to one minute hands-on time where the sample is taken and placed into our device. Press a button and walk away. As Federico described, everything is automated. There are four steps involved in the the laboratory actions. You have what we call uh, the sample receipt. Our machine will do that automatically. You have the sample preparation which will take place in the device attached to the microfluidic chip from Digibio. Then you have what we call this DNA extraction, which will happen in the microfluidic chip. And then you have the final detection, which once again takes place in the chip. All of that is automated and there is no hands-on requirement from any lab technician, PhD scientist to make it happen. From the industry perspective, the user experience is still the same. Instead of being sent to the lab in an envelope, it is inserted into our device. The hands-on time is two minutes or less. The major difference comes in that the results will be received by whoever needs to see the results in about 30 minutes or so.
0: Is this a machine that they would purchase and then they would have to purchase supplies on a frequent basis in order to keep doing those tests?
2: So really, it depends on the volumes. And so we have a model where we will essentially try to follow what we call the photocopier model. We would place our beam-it-up device into the environment where the tests are going to be conducted. With the photocopier, the drums, the ink are provided free of charge, quote-unquote, but the user is charged per copy. And what we will do is we'll have the beam-it-up device, we will have our capsules uh, produced jointly with Digibio, and then we will have a charge per certificate that we issue.
3: And if I can add something on top of this, uh, this is truly revolutionary, uh, Jim, because if you compare what you have today, most likely uh, very little testing for this sort of fraud, and, and the organization that can afford actually the testing will have to have a full R&D lab. That need to have an operator managing the flow of consumables and reagents and materials that have to come in. This is extremely complex. Now, all of this goes away. You just have one machine to do your test and tell you, is this right or not? Can I trust it? Is there any potential problem? And so this is really the truly revolutionary product that we are developing, where it's just one click of a button and you have your insert. And that's fantastic because you can just act so much faster than before.
0: And, and what's the time scale for this in terms of it being ready for market? So we're looking
2: to do our first pilots in the early part of uh, 2021. So I would say in about six to nine months time from now. And then it'll be marketed in the latter half of next year as a fully fledged solution.
0: I got a press release this morning. Did I see that you just got um, funding for the COVID-19 Innovation Fund as well?
2: Yes, we did. We pivoted very quickly to COVID-19 because the feedback we're getting, and and Jim, this may apply to the dairy industry as well. Different requirements coming through from different parts of the world. So, for example, China just banned the import of meat from Brazil unless there's a certificate to state it's COVID-19 free. And so now we're in discussion with companies in Brazil who want to do environmental testing for COVID-19, not only in the factories, but in the offices. We cannot do COVID-19 testing of every carcass, for example, in the meat industry, but we can do regular monitoring of the equipment that is used to handle the carcasses. We haven't had a request yet from the dairy industry, but if we do, we'll be in a position to offer environmental testing for COVID-19 to the dairy industry as well. Not initially, but later it will be the same type of solution that we're discussing here. There is another solution that we are working on at the moment. And we call it the A1, A2 solution for the dairy industry. What we're seeing is a trend towards uh, A2. We, we see it in Asia, particularly in China. So we're seeing this, uh, an increase now in our solution for A1-A2 to detect the difference between the two. Knowing that only 9% of the world's uh, cows are actually A2, this is an opportunity for fraud just like normal milk and then also on the other side in terms of making claims companies want to be able to make a claim that a certain type of milk for example 95% A2 so we're working quite closely now with large companies and small dairies who are trying to pivot around to A2 milk that uh, we can help them to make sure that it is really A2 they're
0: supplying to the companies. Now we head to the Baltics for some fun with ice cream. And Food Union definitely has fun with ice cream as it sells a whole range of products in Northern and Eastern Europe. It recently launched more than 100 new flavours in all of its markets and to tell us more about the company, its products and how it comes up with these products and why is Norman Staniewicz, CEO of Food Union Europe. Could you just give me a little bit of, uh, of the history of the, the company, Food Union, and, and you're in
4: a lot of different countries, how that came about? The story started in uh, 2012, when uh, two of the very Latvian dairy companies were merged, and uh, with a very long legacy of production of dairy products in Latvia, they were merged, and this is here in Riga, and where Food Union was born. It so happened that uh, it was a, a largest producer of dairy products as well as ice cream in here. So the, it was acquired by Andrey bismilnitsky who originally, uh, prior to this, uh, developed Danone in Russia. Or back then, when uh, when he was uh, leading that, it was called UniMilk. It was a built uh, company which was later on acquired by. Danon and became the market leader there for the dairy products and uh, after selling that to Danon he uh, moved on here to Latvia and, and, and found Food Union with the basic idea that uh, it's a very original dairy or ice cream company concept where it's much more tailored to a very high value functional products and experimenting so that it's Slogan is saying it's it's uh, it's not about food. It's about people and this is how we approach business and that's how we Approach business also in uh, 2012 when the companies were acquired and also this is when I joined the company and uh, What we did is we basically we did a turnaround of the brands. We rebranded most of the most of the brands that the company had we changed the recipes going from um, a lot of the ice cream which produced from uh, palm oil and, uh, and vegetable fats, we moved all of that into the dairy fats and we made that sort of cleaning up the, the, the recipes for any additives and, and made them much more clean and plain um, a label. And, and, and that pretty much took a, you know a couple of years until you turn around the Latvian operations and really made that a successful, clean local operations here. Uh, after that period, I mean, looking from uh, then uh, further expansion and at one point uh, we looked as like maybe again we should be more aggressive going to the Russia because of Andre's roots there and looking at that market, but the question was solved by itself because of the sanctions between European Union and Russia. So that, <laughs> that took care of the question of itself, so no business was possible there. So we clearly pursued further the expansion here in Northern Europe and Europe by acquisitions and when we acquired the largest ice cream player also in Estonia with its operations in Lithuania as well for the trade we became the ice cream champion in the Baltics and again because of the synergies that were possible through the operations uh, through the production but also because of the marketing and approach which I genuinely believe for foods union is, is, is quite different from any other uh, FMCG or at least any ice cream or dairy company that I have seen. We were very successful in changing that company's product portfolio again, boosting up the local brands, um, enhancing basically and empowering the local management to use really sort of the Estonian values because, you know, as you might know, I mean, Latvia, Estonia and Lithuania are very small countries, but even there, they are surprisingly large even taste differences, because if if Estonian if Estonian would typically and of course this is our generalization but if an Estonian will always prefer sort of you know the wild um, berries from the woods with a little bit sourish taste, then the Lithuanian or the southern part. Will prefer like honey and uh, and uh, and nuts and, and stuff, and then you know Latvia is always sort of stuck in the middle, and 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 that's that's sort of what enabled us to develop these local tailored brands, the the history, the, the 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 childhood memory ice cream, and that here in the Baltics, and really empowering the knowledge and the context of local management to expand those brands which we, which we uh, understood that this is a valuable thing and we saw that this needs to be expanded further so we went on to northern europe to norway where we acquired a family-owned um, uh, uh, business in bergen where it did actually in bergen it, it rains uh, 250 days per year but uh, they are one of the Heaviest per capita consumers of ice cream in in Europe. And it was a very regional player, and we came with the very same approach. So we said, look, you know, you are the ones who know the markets and you know the taste preferences and you know you know what needs to be done. So we worked together and we told them the story, what we think is a good, you know, how we see the ice cream development and why, you know, the locality is so important, and why we want to be a local player with local brands. And Thanks to this approach, we are now have became uh, a national player in Norway. We're listed in, in national chains, which I'm very proud of the team, that we have great success there. And similarly on going to Denmark, where we also made an acquisition of the largest ice cream producer in Denmark, followed on by acquisition of um, what is called the doors to delivery business. That's the sort of how we call it, and basically what it is, we have this business in Denmark and in, in Norway. Each country is approximately 100, 150 trucks, little trucks, which drive around uh, the country. They would draw, draw, drive into the towns and villages, play music, and people would come out and buy ice cream from the trucks. And in this particular environment, where we are all now stuck in, this was a very good opportunity for us as well, because This is where people that were very happy to come out and they didn't have to go to the stores and the ice cream came to them. So that made very, very happy our customers and and us as well. And and further on, we we saw that there's an opportunity to further expand this ideology also in Southeast Europe. So that followed on with an acquisition of also in Romania. Uh, We saw in the meantime that We we were exporting ice cream from Latvia to Russia uh, because ice cream is not uh, interpreted as a a dairy product under the Russian embargo ban. So we were able to export it there, but because of the huge exchange rate differences that made our product very expensive in in Russia. So what we did instead is we we bought uh, a company in Belarus, an ice cream producer and now we produce in belarus ice cream for our belarus market and also for our st Petersburg and and moscow market i mean mean, i'm not saying russia because of the vastness of that so we predominantly just focus on those markets and uh and yeah and again uh, what we did is uh, it's an interesting story just coming back to this belarus acquisitions is that thanks to locality approach and by really focusing on belarus values uh, we were able to become like a very popular ice cream, and a very favored ice cream in Belarus, especially because of it. this was not sort of, yeah, we produce in Belarus, but it's for Russia and everything. But it's like, no, this is just for Belarus. This is like our Belarus ice cream. So that, that was a very special story. And and I think that that's, that's kind of also a little bit, I hope that it shows the development of the food union, that it has been through an M&A, Yes, going through the Northern Europe, because we are the largest ice cream company here in Northern Europe, and acquisitions in in, uh, in Belarus and in in, uh, in Romania. And now for the last two to three years, we have been focusing on really enhancing these brand values and the local values in respective countries, so that when we say, you know, it's not about food, it's about people, we really are, we are talking about the uh, the local brand values and if you look at also at our website at foodunion.com you can see that how many brands we have there and the reason for that is that each of these brands plays a very special moment in your childhood memory in your respective country and we don't want to say that you need to eat the same ice cream brand with the same taste in all countries that's just wrong because you know what makes you happy is your um, childhood memories and this is what we want to bring you on and revival of legends or you know however you want to call them and and this is such a fun story to tell and when and and also when i tell this uh the story and ideology of uh, food union to to my colleagues or 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 other colleagues outside the organization and friends you know it always sort of brings the smile to your face because it's such a fun thing to talk about and if you look at food union abbreviation we abbreviate is a fun and at the same time, yes, I mean, we are an international company. So we are developing also in China, which is purely a dairy business. And we have built there two greenfield factories, which is operating uh, for China market, in China market. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's a little bit different story from Food Union Europe.
0: I, I know recently you launched about 100 new flavors, but when you think of the the number of countries that you're in, that's not really that much, is it? But the the explanation that you just gave about the local markets, I guess that's how you come up with so many different ones, is that you have the experts on each particular market.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that coming up with the novelties and new tastes is probably, I think it's the best part of my job because, I mean, you know... What makes it so special is that, um, of course, an ice cream business is very much driven by international trends. And you always need to follow international trends and looking at, you know, where everything is going. But at the same time, what we are blessed to do here in Food Union, we are blessed to basically to create those tendencies that we believe will be successful next year or in two years time based on, on, uh, on, on business intelligence tools, based on knowledge that our management and marketing people have, and of course, as I said, also following the global trends. And that's why, as you rightly said, that for this year, we launched over 100 novelties across Europe in all of the markets. But if you break them down per country, and then if you break them down per these uh what we call the in this year sort of the internal blocks of development that we have been focusing on then it makes it uh, maybe a little bit easier to comprehend and grasp because indeed you know 100 is a large number but let me maybe share with you sort of the the thought that we had for this year when we were coming up with these novelties and the new product development plan on how to look at that because what we believe is that we want what we want to share with our customers and with our people is 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 a stories, and and we want to bring them this pleasure of the of enjoyments. and one of that is clearly the people uh, at home have been now uh, long driven to to enjoy more sort of complex tastes and this uh, gourmet culinary and this was one of the trends which we really wanted to bring so we came up with You know, pistachio flavoured ice cream with these sprinkles of of macaroons, for example. There's also the Pavlov cake ice cream uh, cone that we launched in in Estonia. Uh, There's you know bourbon vanilla ice cream uh, in a white chocolate that we launched in Denmark. So these are sort of very complex tastes and, and gourmet tastes that you can really bring sort of restaurant experience to yourself at home that's one of the trains that we did the second is which i'm also a great believer in, and a lot of, of of my colleagues are is the guilt-free and the problem with the guilt-free always have been that they're all very good being guilt-free but the taste has never been quite up there right <laughs> and so the challenge that we were faced is with that we basically came up with these good, genuinely good tasting ice creams that are, have less way less sugar, less less fats and less calories. and this year under this category we launched in Norway two in my opinion, fantastic tasting ice creams. One is the uh, is the carom, salt, salty caramel uh, ice cream and the, the other is blueberry and um, lavender guilt-free ice cream. Also, it's it's a lucky Yule brand that we launched in Norway. Uh, And this just goes to show that um, guilt free ice creams can taste good. There are three more that uh, we we sort of internally position. So the the third is the seasonal signatures such as the natural taste. So, for example, like uh, smoothie ice creams from pear, lemon and ginger in belarus we also we made uh, vanilla raspberry stick which is sort of very local taste for for uh, for belarus as well uh, and for russia we launched an idea that uh, we we started a, a couple years back here in latvia it was a mango sorbet stick which is again it's a, it was a super success by the way when we tested it in china uh, we we produced this ice cream in Latvian, we exported it to China, and the feedback that we got from the Chinese is that this is a true mango taste. The fourth is uh, what we call delicious disruption. And in here, again, we can talk about, probably, let me start with what I think is the craziest disruption of this year, Is that, and what I heard that is like, you're not serious, we well, are not going to launch it. So the Norwegians came and said, right, so we have an idea, we want to launch a chocolate ice cream with sea salt chips. So, that, so that's the, that's what we did in Norway. Then in Denmark, we launched a tutti frutti flavor filled with popping stardust. In Lithuania, we launched a peach flavor ice cream with watermelon sprinkles. So this is, I mean, I think in here it's the it's the element of surprise which is the key. And and you take the expected and i suppose you turn it in unexpected or in this surprise so, so bringing these tastes in a very different format and fifth of, and obviously that is a very global trend is all the plant-based ice creams and and yeah we also be following that trend and you know our uh, danish marketing colleagues called uh, this ice cream uh, vegan ice if you if you take the the flavors and the trends break them down into the countries you're actually you're left not with that many ice creams per per country, and you of course you need to be responsible because how our commercial people say that you cannot forget that you know the shelf is not made out of rubber, so we need to place them also on the shelf. So that's this is how we see the uh, the new product development. This is how we develop them, and this is why we believe that it is such a fun thing to do.
0: Definitely, I th- I think I remember at one of the shows I was at a show in Eastern Europe, and you had. Products there, and there was a, a a black cone, black cones, yes, yeah, <laughs> which uh, everybody was really interested in. I think it was one of the big stars of the show was these black ice yes. cream cones.
4: Yeah, that, that's definitely that's one of the very well selling. Uh, the, the, we have the waffle caps also black, and also the cones black, and that's that's is something we have in in Baltics and in in Romania as well. Yeah.
0: Are there any other markets that you'd like to expand to? Because it, it seems like not only do your products do very well in those markets that they would also do well in other markets.
4: Yeah, I mean, we have been very acquisitive group uh, in Europe and uh, despite we have been uh, not so active recently and there have been numerous reasons for that it's been not a very good summer last year in Europe and now with all of the uh, the pandemic going around, it's not so many sort of immediate opportunities to pursue. However, at the same time, we will and we are and we will remain uh, interested in further development in markets. And how we view our target markets is probably a little bit different. I mean, of course, the, the if they are adjacent or or in a proximity, that's great. But what is more important, how I think it's 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 important to look at the market is that we, through our work, can we actually bring uh, happiness to the consumers there? And to, to do that, you need to be able to be standing on the shelf. So there are a couple of prerequisites of that. I mean, one of them is that there must be a heritage and there must be a history of ice, ice cream making in the country or in the region, which we can refer to. The second is that if that market is, is, is dominated by one of the multinationals, That makes it very difficult to do because they control it so tightly that you cannot, as a small player, really enter that. And and then, you know, it's kind of, it's waste of resources at the end of the day and it doesn't really pay off. And the third, which is very important, is that we need to be comfortable that the companies which join our food unit family share the same values because we have been, I mean, not making a couple of acquisitions because we see if, if these values don't match, it's, it's very difficult for us further on then to integrate them, to work with them, and really to share them. Because I think the most important guys are the marketing and the commerce guys in respective countries, because those are the ones who are in constant touch with the people. And then it's, it's a very great level of uh, respect, authority, and independence which is provided. And that, of course, makes it also a responsibility which comes along. And, and that's why further expansion We certainly are looking at that, uh, but we need to be mindful of these limitations. How often do you
0: come up with new products?
4: Uh, We have to come up with new products every year. Uh, Every year you need to launch novelties. And usually there is, uh, this is about the time that we will, everybody is very busy starting on novelties for 2021. And how that happens is that we are looking at what have been the trends so far in the market. We see what we see and what can we learn from global trends. So one of the very active, uh, you know, large markets, of course, which you need to be looking at is America, which is very innovative in food and tendencies there, which needs to be followed. Then we see how we can adopt that and whether we believe that the consumer in particular country will appreciate that. It's also very data driven because we look at the how the existing consumer is 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 acting on the ice cream because we have these different tastes flavors formats in the market so through analysis of that we are able to project and to to forecast which of these skus or which of these novelties will perform better and which of these uh, novelties are really sort of will be a good hit in the market and uh, what makes it very special is that here in in latvia in Riga, where also i am today we have what we call the ice cream competency center. so it is like a small plant where we test all of these ice creams where we produce them and also where the knowledge is accumulated so all of these npd people from other countries would come here develop the ice cream on this smaller like miniature factory so that we can really replicate the taste that we will have in a real factory then make a sort of a crazy different variations of that and then we call together all of the real interested stakeholders like commerce marketing and we do outside testing and then we come up with a final product so it's it's a very lengthy process which is a data driven which is a taste driven which is a trend driven And it's happening here and accumulated the knowledge uh, here in Riga, which is then taken and brought back to the respective factory and country and implemented there for for what now to be a 2021 season.
0: The testing place that you have in Riga, that must be a job that everybody in the world wants. Indeed,
4: right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, you could probably pay about, I don't know, five euros a year instead of uh, an actual salary.
4: Just to get in there, and they develop much more ice creams than we launch. So just the, to to get a taste of these different flavors and, and formats, which they come up with, it's 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 it's, it's fantastic, and it, it really is. It's it's you know, I really think I'm having a dream job.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you, you also launched a, an an e-commerce in some different countries as well recently. What, was that in response to the coronavirus, or were you always planning
4: on doing that? i mean of course the pandemic has a major impact on that because the consumer behavior changes but i suppose the pandemic by itself it didn't create anything and it didn't destroy anything it either accelerated things which we wanted to do or ourselves or something which we have been always keeping on so to say the back burner and now it we were just had an opportunity to bring it forward so this was exactly the case also with e-commerce in our group is because because we had this door delivery business in Denmark and Norway, we have been long discussing that having e-commerce platform to support that would be very useful. And equally we came then to Latvia and Lithuania and Romania and we stood, well, yeah, now with the lockdown, let's let's do that because it won't be a better time than now. And we saw that, I think the most interesting uh, outcome or the most interesting learning from this is the appreciation of the consumers. because. You know, by implementing this, uh, the high quality service and very personalized service when these uh, our drivers come and deliver goods to you, then what happens is that you know that this ice cream is coming straight from the factory.
0: How's that been going so far? Has it been good uptake?
4: It's been growing, of course. I mean, you know, since we launched it, it has been growing. But we need to be mindful that this is still, it's a, it's a very, it's a new channel for us. And it's, uh, of course, compared from the total revenue that we have on a European-level basis, it's still very small. But yet, we see that as something where we want to remain. We don't want to become a competitive competition to the retail chains because that's not our business. However, as a complementary uh, distribution channel and maybe more an access to a consumer, this is something that we're quite happy to keep because also if we look at the our... Um, scandinavian operations we see that through that we are able to bring uh, and maybe even test some of our novelties to the consumer and then our person meets the consumer and he can ask hey what do you think of it do you you like it do you want to change it and 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 that a really I think the real value that we have in this is that you get this direct access to your end consumer and you can talk to him. And I think this has been the biggest debate that we have had in our group is that the valuable information or the feedback that you get from your consumer is the real value of the e-commerce that we have obtained from it. I keep
0: thinking about that ice cream facility where they come up with new flavours and test them. I think if I worked there, my weight would double. But what a cool job that would be. And that's it for another podcast. Some pretty diverse topics, as usual, and that's also the case next week when we hear from First Milk in the UK, Ed Long in the US and avocado milk in New Zealand, although the product is in the U.S. market. The week after that we have our virtual IFT roundup, and the week after that we have DSM and Fonterra, among others. So, lots to look forward to but we won't wish our life away. Guaranteed rain here next week as I've booked a few days off to go walking in the Highlands, but of course I'll still be writing and doing the podcast, so there's no escape from that. Okay, well, until next time, please take care, have a great week, and, as always, thanks for listening.